Why is everyone so mad? That's what a recent New York Times article asked. They, they were wondering, why is there so much angst, so much anger in the world? And as they asked the question, they, they asked it through the lens specifically of the service industry. They, they went around asking uh, airline hostesses and, and pilots, airline staff, restaurant wait staff, uh, retail staff, what are you experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis? And to a man almost, the people that they interviewed said people have gotten a lot more angry. They get very, 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 very mad if their order, which was supposed to be ready in five minutes, takes five and a half minutes to prepare. The anger levels are increased when the airline staff simply applies the rules of the law and says, please put your mask over your mouth and nose for the duration of this flight. People are fighting airline staff because of the rules that they apply. One restaurant owner proclaimed that some of my most friendly customers have turned into some of my most heated customers over seemingly small and minute details. And as the New York Times reporter asked these questions, well, why have things gotten so mad? Uh, to a man, the people said COVID has changed everything. Well, COVID might be a factor, but do pandemics, problems, actually have that big a grasp on our emotions and our responses? Can we really blame our affections, our responses on things beyond us, or is there somewhere deeper we need to look? Why are people so angry? Perhaps it's because we're all focused on the wrong thing. In our passage this morning, I think we, we get help from the Lord to, to realign our focus and to help our hearts to not be so angry, but to rejoice. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 108 as we continue our sermon series working through some of the Psalms in book five of the Psalter. So again, the Psalms are not just a conglomerate of random thoughts by different people. They are the organized, systematic layout of God's teaching to God's people right, to help us praise him in all kinds of seasons. So five books, books one and two, talk about the Davidic rise, the, the rise of the Davidic king. All right, Psalms one through 72, Psalm three and four, Psalms, uh, books three and four, right? Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm uh, 106. I talk about the exile, the time in the exile, and then Psalm 107 begins book five, which talks about the, the release from the exile. So we find ourselves this morning in Psalm 108. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 507. Psalm 108. A song, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So here's what I think is the main idea of Psalm 108. The main idea of this passage. You can find it on the bulletin page where your sermon notes are. In the midst of any danger, we can delight in God trusting that he will be true to his promises and deliver his people. In the midst of any danger, we can delight in God, trusting that he will be true to his promises and deliver his people. If you are an avid reader of the Psalms or an astute student of the Psalms, or you just happen to look at a study Bible this week preparing for this psalm, you might recognize a familiar tune in this song or psalm. It's because Psalm 108 is not really that original. Its author, David, composed it by combining verses from two other psalms he wrote. So, so look here at Psalm 108 in the first five verses. Kind of let your eyes scan through those first five verses quickly. Now keep a finger here in Psalm 108 and turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 57. All right, so stay in Psalm 108, but then flip back to Psalm 57. All right, the superscription in Psalm 57 tells us that this same David wrote it. And it tells us the circumstance when he, when he wrote it when he fled Saul and was in a cave hiding for his life. But he was in danger. And then drop your eyes down to verses 7 through 11. And notice they're almost the exact same words as the first five verses of Psalm 108. You see that Psalm 57, 7 through 11 is the exact same, almost word to word to Psalm 108, verses 1 through 5. All right, now, now turn back to Psalm 108. We're going to do a little, little Bible study right now. All right, so you're going to, just a, a note, you will need your Bible during the sermons at Temple Hills Baptist Church. All right, you should just open your Bible, look at the Bible, get in the habit of reading your Bible with me. All right, so we're back in Psalm 108. All right, this time let your, your eyes scan through the, the last part of the Psalm, verses 6 through 13. Look through those verses real quick, take a, take a mental snapshot of these verses. Now, now keep a finger here in Psalm 108, 6 through 13, and now turn back to Psalm chapter 60. Again, David is the author, and again, David is in danger. This time, 
uh, under the threat of, of some surrounding enemies in war. The superscription kind of talks about a, a battle that, 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 that was going on. Right, and now drop your eyes down to verses 5 through 12 of Psalm 60. And notice they're nearly identical to verses 6 through 13 of Psalm 108. Right, you see that almost word to word, every single verse matches the last half of Psalm 108. Now you can flip back to Psalm 108 now. So, so here's what I think is, is going on in, in the 108th Psalm. David is, is taking the words of these two specific Psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, written during specific seasons in specific circumstances where danger was present, and he's appropriating them to a new situation. Right, we don't know the exact circumstance of, of Psalm 108. The, the heading doesn't tell us. But I think it's meant to convey that in any season, in any kind of danger, these words here are appropriate. In any danger, there's reason to delight in God and to trust that he will deliver. David shows us here the posture we are to have in any sort of problem. And in examining this psalm this morning, we want to examine our posture in life's problems. And to do so, we want to ask two questions as we walk through this psalm together. I'm going to serve as the two points of this sermon. Number one, where is your heart? He said it in verses one through five. And number two, where is your help? You said it in verses six through 13. Number one, where is your heart? Number two, where is your help? First, where is your heart? Now, this is not a question of anatomy. I'm not asking you to, to locate the, the organ in your body that, that pumps blood throughout the rest of your body. Now, this is a question of attitude, of affection of alignment, of volition, of cognition, of action. You see, the heart in the Bible is descriptive of the whole person. Or as David says at the end of verse 1, the, the entire being. So where is your heart? What's the status of it? What, what's the status of, of you? David says his heart is steadfast, set, fixed. The opposite of a steadfast or fixed heart is an unstable and fickle heart. One that moves and changes with every circumstance. Your affections rise or fall with every one of life's experiences. Your attention shifts with every shifting situation. But that's not how David here is. He says, in essence, as problematic and dark and dangerous as situations might be, I'm set like a stone on a certain thing, praising God. My heart is steadfast or fixed, O oh God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Among the peoples, I will sing praises to you among the nations. Notice the resolve there to give God praise. I will sing and make melody with all my being. I will give thanks. 
I will sing praises. And notice when this praise starts. When the day starts. It's not that as situations improve over the course of the day that David feels like God is then finally worthy of praise. No, from the moment his eyes open, David opens his mouth singing praise to God. Verse 2 says he awakens the dawn. The dawn is supposed to wake us up. David says, I wake the day up. He grabs his harp and, as it were, calls the morning to begin by making melody to the Lord. And again, just remember when these words were originally sung. In Psalm 57, what we just saw, David says he was in a cave, hiding for his life. You would think that in such a situation, he'd be quiet as a mouse so as not to be found. But he's singing. You would think that in such a situation, any waking moment would be spent strategizing how to get free from danger or how to get back into Saul's good graces. But David is singing. And even now, in whatever present peril or trouble David is in, he's still singing to God praising him with all that he is, with his entire being. I think it causes us to stop and ask ourselves, why aren't we more like David? Why don't we share his posture here? Especially given the fact that not many of us share his problems. And that's not to minimize that we have real problems and real struggles in life. Uh, Some of you have wrestled with incredibly hard things. You grew up in dangerous neighborhoods or in dangerous homes. But generally, we haven't had people throwing spears at our head like David did. We haven't had to hide in outdoor caves like David did. We haven't been in battles where there's danger of being thrust by swords like David did. We haven't gone through the same kind of dangers, and yet, why is it that we lack the same kind of delights? We've been in comparatively less dangers, but too often we are guilty of giving God less praise. We don't sing to the Lord. And that seems not to be the, the steady tune of our lives. Rather, a, a more dour, surly, harsh disposition seems to characterize us. I mean, spend just a little bit of time on the internet. And one of the sad realities is that it seems that as Christians experience more and more danger, as the culture around us becomes more hostile to us because of our beliefs and our actions, that we get more curmudgeonly. There's more criticisms of the world, complaining about the world, uh, casting other brothers and sisters aside and treating them as the world treats us. There seems to be Far more pessimism and not enough praise. I mean, is that what characterizes you? If we pricked your heart this morning with a needle, would praise ooze out? Well, let's take it out of the hypothetical and into reality. What comes out when God pricks your heart? Not with needles, but with nuisances with inconveniences, with disappointments, with dangers. 
when you get a negative performance review and it seems like your job is in jeopardy. Or, or when you get a health scare and the doctor gives a, a grim diagnosis. In those dangers, are you singing praises to God? When noisy neighbors keep you up too late at night and nagging children wake you up too early in the morning, do you arise waking the dawn with hymns of praise amidst those nuisances? When you expect to have an evening of physical intimacy with your spouse, it's a done deal in your mind. You got it all planned out. But then your advances are met with staunch defenses, claims that I'm too tired or too busy, or, or those three words that, that seemingly mean to, to soften the blow but still shatter your picture-perfect plans. Not tonight, honey. People are like, I ain't your honey. You don't talk, talk to me like that. In those moments of intense frustration and disappointment, are you making melody to God from your heart? Is that what pours out from you? No, of course not. It's unrealistic to think that you can praise God when you're upset, when you're frustrated, when you're in danger. That's often our mindset, isn't it? Why is that? Well, I think it's because we've allowed circumstances to dictate our delights. And as they change, so does our heart. Our affections, attitudes, thoughts, actions reveal that they're slaves to circumstances. David here gives us a better way. Fix your heart, set your heart on something that is fixed, on someone that doesn't change, on God. David's praise is not affected by present situations. His heart can be steadfast on singing praises and giving thanks to God in all circumstances, because God is steadfast in his character and his care in all circumstances. I will give thanks and sing praises to you among the nations for, verse 3, or because your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. God is the ground the reason to raise our voices in praise through every season. His covenant-keeping love and commitment to his people are constant. Above the heavens, above the skies that, that seem so fixed and immovable above us. Well, God's love is fixed more even above that. His love and faithfulness will never change because God will never change. Notice how, how David ties God's attributes to his person in verses 4 and 5. His steadfast love is above the heavens. Verse 4, just as God is above the heavens. Verse 5, that, that is his essence and his attributes are the same. You can't have God's love without God. You can't have God's faithfulness without God. You can't see God's glory without God. God is all that he has 
all the time. And he is worthy of exaltation and praise by all of his people in all that we go through. And so David's heart is fixed, set on singing praises to this steadfast, praiseworthy God. And he wants all the world to hear him, all the peoples, all the nations. Hear me singing even in the midst of sorrow and danger so that you can question this strange thing. How can you sing tunes when times are turbulent? Because of who I'm singing to, to God. And because I've set my hope and my faith and my delight in him, and he totally satisfies. You see, a heart set on singing praise to God can serve as a strong evangelistic and apologetic witness. You see, because in a fallen world where sin has affected every single area of life, every person living experiences some kind of danger or distress, some kind of conflict or confusion. And the majority of the world is only singing the blues. So when they see a certain group of people going through the same kinds of difficulties, and sometimes even worse, and those same folks are singing, but not songs of blues, but songs of praise, it stands out. Either they're delusional, or they've tapped into some kind of delight that I don't know about yet. And so they start to ask questions. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, frames it this way. They ask the reason for the hope that is in you. And you respond, oh, let me tell you, it's not because I've lived an easy life, it's because God is good in my life. Let me tell you, not about how I lack any struggles, let me tell you about the steadfast love of the Lord and his faithfulness to his people. You tell them about Jesus, whom David points to, the greater David, God's divine son and God's divine king who became a man and whose life was constantly in danger. I mean, King Herod sought to kill him at birth. Satan sought to destroy him at every turn. The Jews sought to stone him, and they enlisted the help of the Romans to ultimately crucify him. Yet through all the twists and turns, Jesus' heart was fixed on God, on praising him. Even near the moments of the darkest danger, before he was to be crucified. And at his last supper with his disciples, before that dark moment, what was Jesus doing? Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 tells us that Jesus led these disciples in singing a hymn. How can you be singing in this moment? Don't you know what's about to happen, Jesus? Oh yeah, Jesus could sing because his heart was not set on Judas who would betray him or the crowd that would arrest him, or the chief priests and elders who would falsely accuse him, or or the soldiers who would beat and crucify him. No, Jesus' heart was set on God, his heavenly Father, who would rescue him, whose steadfast love would continue towards him and would not allow his anointed one to see corruption. He knew that God would be exalted in his son, as his son would be exalted over death enthroned as Lord over all, over all nations and all peoples for all time. Over us. 
Christ would be exalted as he reigned over us, over his church, comprised of people from every tribe and every nation. Jesus leads his church in singing praise to his father for his love and faithfulness. He sent his son to die and rise for us so that we might be saved from damnation. If God would be so good and so gracious as to save us from that danger, from eternal damnation in hell, how would he not also showcase his love and care for me in every other danger? As as our sister Dominique sometimes says, anything other or more than salvation is extra. That's to say, if all God did was save you, that would be enough to sing his praises for all eternity. But he hasn't just saved you. He's sanctifying you. He's put his spirit inside you. He's given you a church family. He's fed you and clothed you and cared for you and protected you and pursued you. And he will not let you go. He set his heart on you. Have you set your heart on him? Where's your heart this morning? Fix it on God. And praise him for who he is and what he's done. There's a second question we want to consider as we walk through this passage. Not just where's your heart, but where is your help? Point number two, where is your help? And really those two questions, where's your heart and where's your help, only have one right answer. In God. You see, we're in the first five verses. David showed that his heart was set on God in praising him. In, in the last eight verses of this psalm, David shows that his help is set on God as well. How does he show that? By praying to God, asking God to deliver his people. Now look there at verse 6. David prays that, that your loved ones or beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. It's a petition for God to rescue his people from whatever danger is present, which, as the rest of the verses kind of portray, may be in the form of a kind of military campaign or battle. You know, I think think it shows us here that praise and petition go together. We need not over-spiritualize things so that when hardships come, we exclaim, I'm just going to praise God in the midst of the storm. Yeah, that's fine, but, but it's okay to pray that God would bring you out of the storm. Amen. Friends, we need not worry about appearing too needy to God. You can't ask him for too much. Amen. He doesn't irritate at hearing your voice. Neither are his resources depleted by the great number or the grand nature of your request. Amen. No, rather, the more you go to him, With all kinds of requests, small or large, in all kinds of situations, you show how much you trust him. How big you think he is. In that way, prayer is a form of praise. You acknowledge there are some things too big for you to handle. Some things too deep for you to get yourself out of. And you need God's help. And you acknowledge that God desires to help you. Why? Because he loves you. You you see that here? David prays that God would give salvation to his beloved ones. God's love launches him into salvific action. 
I mean, that's what we read later in John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's a love bestowed upon us, not because we are intrinsically lovable, but because God is love. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still unlovable, Christ died for us. Amen. Or consider Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, where God tells Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That David trusts that the Lord who lovingly chooses people to be his own would not abandon them, that he would deliver them, and so he prays to God. Amen. And he recites God's promises back to him. Now look at verse 7. David says, God has promised in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Now here's where some of you read this passage this week and asked me, what in the world does this mean? Well, those places listed in verse 7, Shechem and Succoth, are cities in the land of Canaan. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God told Abraham, you might remember, to, to leave his father's house and to go to a land that he would show him. And he didn't tell him what the land was or where it was. He said, just go to a land I'll show you. And he promised Abraham also that he would make of him a great nation. Well, a few verses later in Genesis chapter 12, in verses 5 through 7, we read that Abraham leaves his father's house and he came to the land of Canaan and passed through the land to the place of Shechem. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And he did. It took over 400 years of God putting his people through the miseries of slavery in Egypt and then 40 more years of God putting his people through the wandering in the wilderness, but God delivered on his promises. Amen. He brought the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, out of bondage and into the land of Canaan to occupy it. And he apportioned territory to the various tribes, to, to Gilead, the Israelite territory east of the Jordan River, uh, to the tribe of Manasseh, which straddled along the river, and Ephraim and Judah, the, the main tribe to the west of the Jordan River, God gave them the land by giving them victory over their enemies. 
But what was really special was not their newfound physical place or space, but their perpetual place under God's protection. They belonged, out of all the other nations in the world, to God. They were his beloved people. I mean, notice again there, God proclaims Gilead is mine. Manasseh, mine. Ephraim, my helmet. Judah, my scepter. God gathered them into his arms and put them in the land. And in declaring that they were his possession, implied that no one could pluck them out of his arms. Not Moab, in verse 9, or Edom, or Philistia, all constant enemies to the people of Israel. God would crush them, subdue them, for they belonged to him too. Notice that, that my pronoun repeated in verse 9. Uh, God is the sovereign Lord over all peoples, including even his enemies. That is, no one can do to God's people unless God allows them to. And when God says enough, it's enough. The Moabites, he said, will be relegated to, to washing the feet of the warrior God. The, the lowest place in the house, washing someone's feet, the, the wash basin. You mighty Moabites will just wash my feet when I take off the armor. Similarly to Edom, he, he tossed his sandals or his shoes, treating these formerly great enemies as slaves, servants. He says, I will shout, a shout of victory over the Philistines. All, all, all that to say that no enemies would prevail against God's people. God would totally protect them. And what comfort and confidence that David would have here as he recalled God's promise. In the midst of whatever danger he was facing, he recalled God's promises to protect his people. Amen. Again, perhaps it was, it was in a battle with other nations that was this, the kind of pressing danger where it seemed like Israel would be defeated. Indeed, perhaps they were temporarily defeated. I mean, verse 11 says that, that it felt like the Lord had forgotten them, rejected them, not gone out with their armies. In such a time, David sought help, not by looking within to his power, but by looking to God and his promises. He remembered God's word and prayed to God to keep what he vowed. Have you noticed the, the different actions throughout this song? One commentator keenly observed that the elements here that David employed in his fight of faith, that he, he sang, he prayed, he read, and meditated on God's word. Saints, those are still the means of grace God gives us to go through any trial of life or test of faith. There's no magic bullet to make you more praiseful or more peaceful in the midst of trouble. No rapid-release spiritual pill that will take your problems totally away. No special self help practice or product that you can rely on. Only God can help you endure any threat with a deep-seated joy and peace in the midst of it. Amen. And he's shown us how to seek him by singing to him, praying to him, reading and memorizing and meditating on his word. So saints, understand that when you come to corporate worship, like this one, week after week, and participate. 
singing the songs and listening to the word and praying the prayers and reading the word and, and hearing the word preached, you're not just checking off a to-do. You're training your heart to trust God. That these regular rhythms of worship are what God has given you to fight any kind of war. And God has given us these things not just for Sundays, but for every day. You know, when we wake up and go through the day not doing these things, we're in essence saying, I can handle the problems of today on my own. But in praying and in singing and in reading the word, we acknowledge my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. David sought God in trouble, which built up his trust in God in trouble. And as he meditated on God's word, on his promises, he knew that God would help him, would help Israel like he vowed to do. He vowed to be their God and declared that they were his. Nobody would take away their inheritance in the land or in him. Think then of how this this psalm that David initially wrote would have served the people of Israel generations after David. You, you know, they, they continued to, to read and pray and sing the, the different psalms over time. Remember, th this psalm here is placed in book five, which we know that it portrays Israel's exile, uh, exile and its exodus out of exile, right? The deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Now, the people of Israel in Babylon would have read and sang and prayed this, this psalm. They were to hear God's promise. We belong to God. And God has given his people a land. And he's vowed to, to triumph over his enemies. It would give them hope of return to the promised land. Not because the king of Babylon would be gracious, or because some other conquering king would come and release them, but because God would be God, true to his very promises. He would not leave his people. Now think of how this psalm is intended to, to serve us, to help us. In whatever danger you find yourself in, hear God reminding you, you are mine. I will protect you. Hear Jesus laying claim to us and committing to us his care. You know, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So we've been studying on Wednesday nights in 2 Corinthians. Here Jesus taking this same ownership of his people that God did of Israel. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, my sheep, they are, they are mine, they belong to me. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Jesus will guard us from every danger and guide us into the promised land. And not a, a measly sliver of property in Palestine, but a new Jerusalem, an eternal dwelling place in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe God? Don't allow circumstances to sway your trust in him. Amen. Again, verse 11 seems to portray that adverse events have led David and others to believe that perhaps God had left them. 
had rejected them. So David asked in verse 10, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who, who will give me victory over Edom, over our enemies? Oh, come on, David. You are a great man of war. I mean, you conquered Goliath. I mean, Saul might have slain his thousands, but David, you didn't slain your ten thousands. That's how we might respond to David here, right? That's how Satan wants us to respond to trials. Look at what you can do on your own, apart from God. Boast in your own strength and boost your self-confidence. But David says, if God is not with us, then all our efforts are worthless. Uh, who can lead us to victory but him? Friends, you have to fight to get to that point. Because the normal thing for us, the natural thing for us, is to believe the lie that we are self-sufficient. I mean, that's what all the world is telling us. You are enough. And nearly every song and every movie kind of pushes self-empowerment. That's what others are telling us. As they boast about our abilities, and we love to hear it. Yes, tell me more about how good I am. But the scriptures lean us in a totally different direction. Holy lean upon the Lord. Whatever we are, whatever strength, whatever skill, how, however impressive our record may be is owing totally to him. By the grace of God, we say, I am what I am. We need God or we have nothing. And sometimes... God sends danger into our lives to teach us that lesson. Again, as we've been studying 2 Corinthians on Wednesdays, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, that, that God allowed intense hardship in he and his, his co-companions, uh, his companions' lives. A hardship to the point that they thought they'd received the sentence of death. But Paul says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Amen. The presence of dangers don't indicate the absence of God. The presence of dangers don't indicate the absence of God. The presence of dangers are intended to make you more cognizant of your need of God. But David understands that. And so again, he leans on the Lord alone for help. He prays in verse 12, grant us help against the foe. Why? For vain, useless is the salvation of man. But, verse 13, with God, we shall do valiantly. For it is he who will tread down our foes. God will do for his people what we cannot do for ourselves. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps folks who can't help themselves, who have no other help but him. He wins wars that we are too weak to fight. He conquers enemies that are too strong for us. He granted David victory over his enemies. He granted the children of Israel victory over their enemies and released them from exile. And in Christ Jesus, he has won victory over every one of our enemies. 
over sin and over Satan and over death. Jesus Christ came, 1 John says, to destroy the works of the devil. He did it by withstanding all the devil's attacks and temptations. He lived a life of submission, not to sin and Satan, but perfectly to his heavenly Father for us. And then he delivered the death blow to Satan on the cross when he he took the record of sins that stood against us and he canceled it by dying in our place. He disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. He stripped them of all the power of their accusations about all God's people. And he said, it's not true because they've all been fulfilled and finished in my death. They've all been purchased. They've all been paid for by every single drop of my blood. And there's nothing else that God needs to do to pay for them. I will eat all his wrath for my people. Then he defeated not just Satan and sin. He defeated the enemy of death. Delano read that us earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. By rising from the grave after being in the tomb for three days. He demonstrated that his payment for our sin was sufficient. And that his victory was complete. He tread down all of our foes. And when we put our trust in him, he grants us the power by his spirit to continually conquer every single foe, every single temptation, every single sin as we lean not on ourselves but on him. Where is your help? It's in God through Christ Jesus. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Keep that in context, right? That don't mean Christ can help you tie your shoe better than you don't know how to tie your shoe or help you sail a boat if you never, you know. It's that Christ helps you do everything that God has called you to do. Amen. There's no sin too great for you to say no to. No temptation too strong. God, through Christ, will help you get through every single hardship. Amen. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, David says, we shall do valiantly. And no danger, no darkness will ultimately defeat us. Because Christ has already defeated every single one of our foes. So then, in the midst of any danger, we can delight in God. Trusting that he will be true to his promises and deliver his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that reminds us of the hardships and troubles and dangers of life, but reminds us that we do not not go through them alone. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a word to win our hearts to praising you even in the midst of trials. We thank you for your promises to be with your people and to deliver us. We thank you for your son who you sent to to rescue us from every kind of danger, ultimately the danger of of your wrath poured out upon sinners. Lord, we pray that you will remind us that if you will rescue us from that danger, there's nothing we will face this week, this life, that is too strong for us because there's nothing too strong for you. Help us to trust in you wholeheartedly, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.